Some years ago, I met a man who had been in a avalanche, snow avalanche in Nepal, and he was buried by the snow, and um, he couldn't get out. And uh, after struggling a little bit, and I don't know how long, and at some point he was cold, he was there, and, and he felt that uh, he decided that I guess he was going to die. And at that point he just let go, completely surrendered. And when he did that, unintentionally f by him, his arm shot up and broke the surface of the snow. It turns out he wasn't that deep under the snow. And the big avalanche and rolled in and tumbled in. And uh, why I want to tell you the story was not so much that he surrendered and then everything was okay, <laughs> as if it's that easy, <coughs> but rather that um, when he came out of the snow, up in the mountains there, um, he was kind of in awe, not of the mountains, not of the sky, not of being even alive. What he was in awe of was the fact that he was aware. The fact that he had this ability to, to notice what was going on around him. And he did notice. He did notice the mountains, the sky, and you know things were kind of vivid for him. But the specialness of the clarity of kind of what defines being alive, I guess, in some one way, is to have the ability to be aware, to be attentive, to be present for the experience with our attentional faculties. It's a remarkable thing that we can have attention, that we have attention. Um, each of you is attentive right now. You're probably a little bit attentive to what I'm saying. And uh, you're present here for the room, present for yourself to some degree. And uh, it's a remarkable human capacity that to a great extent is undervalued, underappreciated. One of the ways it's undervalued is that uh, there's a strong human tendency to be more interested in what we're aware of than the fact that we're aware. So, you know, your thoughts, for example, or your fantasies, or your images in your mind, or the emotions that we have, or the body sensations we have. All kinds of things that come along. And, uh, and there's sometimes that can be a preoccupation, a fixation in those things that kind of are so involved in that it's not really possible to step back and see clearly that we are aware. And, and there's very, very little interest to do, do so because awareness doesn't seem to have much value. I mean, it's kind of there. It's kind of like the air we breathe. It's there, but, you know, it's cheap and just taken for granted. And, and uh, you know, you can't sell it. You know, you can't really do much, you know, like with awareness except use it to be aware. And, um, and so it's kind of underappreciated but it's really an amazing capacity we have. And one way I see it, this thing is that it's the way the universe knows itself. That little kind of idea is, is for me, is very powerful because I feel that I'm part of this universe. I'm not separate from it. The human being human doesn't put me in some different class apart from this wonderful natural universe that has evolved over all this time. And somehow, after this five billion years of evolution from that Big Bang, things come together in such a way that there are beings that have some consciousness, some awareness. And we have, as humans, we have this ability to not only be aware, but to know that we're aware, to begin understanding and being present for the attentional faculties we have. And we are in a mindfulness tradition, so we teach mindfulness, which is using our attentional faculties. And, um, and the mindfulness is, you know, becoming popular and we often use the word mindfulness over and over again, and, and um, you know. But it's not so clear what mindfulness is. And it's a little bit strange for me as a, someone who's been teaching this for almost 30 years now, teaching mindfulness, to say, I'm not sure what it is. I can give you kind of some functional definitions for it. But the more I do this, the less clear I am what it is. So one day, some years ago, I went and back to the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness to find out 
what mindfulness is, to find out what it says about being mindful. And that's like the, 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 you know, the source text for our practice, this particular discourse by the Buddha. And it has the word mindfulness in the title. And the mindfulness teachers all refer to it. So I thought, oh, I'll go back to the source. And to my surprise, this text says almost nothing about mindfulness. <laughs> the word mindfulness is actually you know, somewhat rare in the text. I mean, it's there. I don't know if rare is the right word, but it's much less than I thought, I thought it would be. But the bigger surprise is that the word mindfulness was not a, a verb. And there was no instructions to do mindfulness. And I thought, what? That's what my teachers have been telling me. That's what I've been telling people to do. <laughs> and this famous text doesn't tell us to do mindfulness. And um, rather it says be, if it says anything, it says be mindful. In a way where doing and being are two very different things. Mindfulness is presented a little bit here and there but the, the main, main instructions around being mindful is to establish it. To est so establish mindfulness. That's very different than doing mindfulness. mindfulness. And um, so I kept looking more, and then I started looking around to see what else is it, what, is it, what does it say what we should do? And what it's, it talks about what we should do are different aspects, different qualities or functions or ways of being attentive. It talks about observing. And that's a very big thing there, to, in this text, to observe what's happening. And it, they don't mean with the eye, the, the physical eye necessarily, but more that inner kind of eye, kind of metaphorical way of seeing. But then it also talks a lot about knowing, um, the capacity to know. So, and then it talks about the little word, reviewing sometimes. It talks about clear comprehension, and um, and it has mentions about being mindful, but my, uh, but it's more like mindfulness in, as an adjective. Uh, sometimes, in a mindful way, observe your body. In a mindful way, uh, with mindfulness, with the kind of um, observe your feelings. With mindful, observe your mental states. With mindful, observe your the dhammas, the mental functionings that go on. And, uh, and so I got interested in how <clears throat> there are many different attentional faculties that come together. And, um, and it's fascinating that you, we as human beings have different ways of being attentive. We are, are attentive with our senses. So we are sensing. You know, there's a lot of phys physical sensing going on all the time. There's knowing. And observing is, I think, of, is observing, a, like kind of watching change over time, process. Just you hang in there to observe how things, how things are happening as opposed to observing something that's fixed. You can know something that's fixed and you can observe, or you know, can know something in and of itself, but you can observe what's actually how it's going, what's happening, and how it's developing and unfolding. And then the text talks about being ardent. It talks about wisdom. It talks about some fascinating term called uh, the word that's usually translated as mindfulness is sati, and then they also have this word pati sati. Patisati, and so I looked up how people translated this word patisati, and um, they just translated it as sati. But patisati is not sati; it has a prefix. So what does a prefix do? And that seemed interesting. And then Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a very famous translator, uh, uh, translated as lucid mindfulness, or no, no, lucid awareness. So, wow, lucid awareness. What is that? And um, then why isn't he using the word mindfulness to translate patisati? But so anyway, so it got more and more interesting, this text. And so uh, since this is a very important text in our tradition, uh, 
and as a kind of considered the classic place for instructions for mindfulness practice, uh, we thought we would uh, explore some of this with you over the course of the retreat. And we're not going to give this, uh, these talks in the traditional way of kind of describing the practice of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness in the kind of, kind of usual detailed way, but we're going to look at some of the things that are often overlooked um, uh, in this text. And so one of the things is that there's an opening of the text that defines what mindfulness is, and what this practice for foundations is, and it has wonderful terms and different aspects of our inner ecology that will stand out. And then we'll look at some of these terms like ideas of clear comprehension, um, observation, some of the wisdom that's uh, called upon in the text. There's a, a section of the text called the refrain that's repeated many times. And probably more times than it's repeated are the times that I've read the sutta and ignored the refrain. Because the refrain is not important. It's just, it's just repetitive. Turns out maybe the refrain is the more, most important part of the text. <coughs> and so uh, it's interesting to go and see what it says there about insight and wisdom. And, and, um, and you know, so it's all these kind of interesting qualities. So that's kind of the, what we'd like to do in this uh, retreat is to talk about some of these different aspects, components of attention, the ecology of attention, the different parts of the ecosystem of attention that come into play as we pay attention, um, are, are attentive. And the hope, <coughs> the one hope I have for, that for all of us, maybe including me, is that uh, in the course of the of the week, uh, it heightens our curiosity and interest about what it means to be a, be attentive, what it means to be aware, what it means to be have these attentional faculties operating, so we can be self-aware, we can know what's happening as it's happening, so that we can have insight into our experience in the present moment. That somehow in this entering into the not just entering into the present moment, being here and now but it's beginning to appreciate something which I think is a jewel, a treasure that we all have, which is our uh, variety of capacities we have to be attentive, to be present for our experience as it's happening, to be aware. And, um, and hopefully, my hope is you get interested in this and appreciate it and value it, and you discover that there's a kind of freedom, or there's not kind of, there's freedom to be discovered in our, within the capacity to be attentive, within being aware, within the, the very act of being mindful, attentive, that there is a kind of freedom to be discovered. And in that freedom, then you have a greater and greater appreciation for these attentional faculties we have. And uh, that's one of the functions of this whole emphasis and attention in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness <clears throat> is to move us to an experience of liberation and to freedom. And in so doing, I hope that to some degree <clears throat> that we will all, in the course of this retreat, be able to experience some <clears throat> deeper sense of peace, of safety, of, of ease, of happiness, some degree of <clears throat> feeling that you've come home, not to this room, not to this place, but at home <clears throat> in your own heart. May your attention rest in your heart and feel at home. Thank you. One of the ways that we create a home together here is by 
kind of aligning ourselves together with what we're doing, what we're doing here together. Opening our hearts, studying our suffering, seeing ways that our hearts contribute to our struggling, to our stress, our dissatisfaction. And it's helpful in doing this to feel a sense of safety You'll just use that word, a sense of safety, finding a sense of safety. We all, I think, want to and naturally try to find safety in our lives. We find things that we rely on and touch into as being this is what this is what I'm going to rely on we may rely on our relationships or we may rely on our material goods might rely on having a a home or might rely on various kinds of identities that we have or we might rely on certain qualities that we we have. And yet when we look at what we rely on, wh- where we take a sense of refuge, where this is term refuge refers to a sense of a place that feels safe, we, we look for a place to feel safe in our lives, but if we if we look at where we try to find safety, where we habitually kind of try to land to feel safe, mostly what we rely on for safety is not very reliable. We rely we rely on some of those things I mentioned on on our relationships, on our, some of our identities or things that we own or have. And pretty much what we tend to rely on is, is impermanent. It's not very stable. Over this summer, over this past summer, there are so many events that made this so stark. The fires, the shootings in Las Vegas, the multiple hurricanes, the earthquakes, just how unreliable even the earth is. And so even a kind of thoughtful reflection points out to us that many of the ways that we look for safety and reliability are not very stable places. And so we might come to a spiritual practice looking for some kind of safety or some kind of refuge, looking for some way to feel at ease in this very unstable world. And this instability of the world, this unreliability of things, even the unreliability of life, This is not uh, 
not a mistake, it's just the way things are. There's a kind of an inherent truth to the unreliability. And the, the Buddha points us to the possibility of finding some ease and peace even in the midst of this unreliability. The possibility of, I think of it sometimes as aligning ourselves with the truth, the truth of things, things are impermanent, being impermanent, they don't last. And so they can't be relied on as a place for I can I can I can land on this and I can be happy having this thing. Even as we pick something up, it's already slipping through our fingers. And so the Buddha pointed to the possibility of a kind of an ease, a peace through aligning ourselves with this understanding, this truth, these truths. And he found for himself this possibility of ease and peace and freedom. A mind that can be balanced at ease, no matter what is happening in the events of the world, that our happiness doesn't have to rely on something external being a certain way. And so he found a peace and taught about it. He said, this is possible to find this peace And so this, in a way, he's pointing to a different kind of refuge, not the refuge of having something or landing anywhere. It's not not the way we normally would think of, of refuge. We think of a refuge as a place where we're safe. But in a way, it feels more to me like the refuge the Buddha offers is, it's like, um, an okayness with slipperiness. That there can be the mind at ease, no matter what the circumstances. And so the the, the Buddha did say actually, there is a refuge. I found, he said, he said he'd found a peace that was not reliant on the external world. And this is, a, this is what we could say, we could call the true refuge of our practice, this kind of ease with peace with circumstances, no matter what they are. And so the Buddha offered this possibility. He, 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 he says, you know, hey, this is possible. I found this possibility. And the Buddha being a human being, a person just like we are, he found a path also, a way. He, 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 he found a way to describe how to, how to find this refuge. And so this points to what we could call the classical three refuges in the Buddhist, Buddhist traditions, the refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. But I understand these as being kind of like three sides of a of a triangle, that there are really three aspects of 
of one refuge, this, this refuge that the Buddha pointed to that is possible for us. To me, the refuge in the Buddha is really kind of acknowledging and taking um, faith and confidence in that the Buddha found this possibility and said, hey, it's possible. You can do it too. He said to his monks, yes, I wouldn't tell you it were possible if it weren't possible. Go for it. And so this is um, the traditional refuge of the Buddha is in some ways taking refuge in that there is somebody who pointed this possibility of freedom out to us. This possibility. And that human beings have the capacity to do this. So we can think of taking refuge in the Buddha himself, the being that lived 2,600 years ago, as being the person who identified and taught and said this is possible and here's how you can find this possibility. And we can also take refuge, to me the, the refuge in the Buddha also points to the possibility or the capacity that we have as human beings that he pointed to. We're, hum- we're human beings and this is possible for us as human beings. And I think very much because of this capacity that Gil spoke about, that we have this capacity for this being aware that we are aware. This is part of how this is even possible for us to wake up. And then the refuge in the Dharma, we could say, is the is the um, partly we could say it's the refuge that we can take in the teachings that the Buddha offered. The Dharma is often understood to be the teachings that the Buddha taught. The practices, the wisdom, the understanding that the Buddha offered, this is called the Dharma. But the Dharma, the term the Dharma also refers to the truth of the way things are. This impermanent, unreliable nature of experience. And so the practices that the Buddha taught are ways to help us see the truth of impermanent and unreliable, uncontrollable experience with some degree of balance in the mind. He taught taught us how to meet our experience so that we can have some balance when we see this unreliable world. When we see this truth, this Dharma. And so taking refuge in the Dharma, we could think of as taking refuge. At first it may feel like taking refuge in some of the practices or teachings that the Buddha offered. And I certainly had this at times. It's just like, okay, yes, I can breathe in and know I'm breathing in. That's enough right now. Or, here's an emotion that feels painful, and I can know this. There is awareness here right now. And this, the Buddha talked about meeting our suffering, and this is what's happening right now. So many times taking refuge in just the the simplicity of just meeting experience, knowing this is what's happening right now. Again, I think that the deeper, kind of truer, in a way, truer refuge there is the is landing in alignment with this truth, these truths of impermanent, unreliable. When we find our way 
to not resist this tr- these truths. So much of our suffering comes because we resist these truths. And this is a lot of where the Buddha pointed us to noticing the suffering around resisting these truths. And that suffering is like fighting the truth. <laughs> You'll lose. <laughs> the truth will win. And so aligning ourselves with the truth, we begin to rest and the heart begins to open and relax and feel that slippery landing. It's hard to describe. It's not a place we land in, but it's an understanding, an understanding that's in alignment with the truth. And then the third refuge, the refuge in the Sangha, This really is, in some ways, the the lineage of beings who heard the teachings, practiced the teachings, understood something about it, and communicated to others. This is useful. Try this. Gil has sometimes said that the, this practice, this dharma, is passed from warm hand to warm hand. So there is this lineage from the time of the Buddha until now, people practicing these teachings. And this is the Sangha. This is the community of practitioners and we are all a part of that here. One way to look at refuge in the Sangha is, is to recognize that we need support on this path. It's the rare being who can find their way on a path like this without any support, without anybody pointing out to them, try this, look here, Explore in this way. And so we, we all need support in this. And this is the support of the Sangha. It can be felt in many ways. Some of it is, is felt through, the, through the, uh, the transmission of the, the texts orally for all of those years and then being written down so that we can read them. We are witnessing, we are, we, when we hold the texts in our hands, we are connected to the Sangha. The Sangha transmitted that to us. When we sit in community like this, we can take refuge in the Sangha. It is so much easier often to come into community to practice. Many times when I was sitting a retreat, I would find myself a little bit heavy or weary and not sure I could really continue. And I'd open my eyes and I'd look around and I would see my fellow practitioners sitting or walking. And there could be this inspiration, if they can do it, so can I. And so we can also connect to the Sangha as our support. And so a simple way perhaps to think about these three refuges is that the Buddha perhaps represents our capacity for awakening. The Dharma represents what we wake up to. And the Sangha is the support that we need to do this waking up. 
And another aspect of the support of the Sangha is that we kind of agree to a container of practice together, of ethical conduct together. And Dawn's going to talk about that part. meditation hall as a home. Resting in our capacity to awaken, that being our home. Learning to accept the truth, resting in truth as a home and each other, home. And you can already feel it starting to happen here. We've been in here almost 50 minutes. And you can feel the ease and the peace, stillness in the room. And that will deepen through the course of the retreat. And this Peace and ease and stillness is made possible by our collective commitment to the five precepts. Our heart that starts to attune ethically to harmlessness. wholeheartedly engaging with the five precepts feels like the expression of a heart that's devoted to compassion. Not physically harming living beings. There's a heart that's attuned to empathy and compassion. Not stealing expression of a mind and heart that is utterly content. There's a generosity of heart and the practice of letting go. Not causing any harm with our sexual activity or energy. Refraining from speech that's false and harsh, divisive, just useless, just talking to hear ourselves talk, refraining from that. And refraining from using intoxicants of any kind a heart that's committed and devoted to seeing clearly. Discernment, heart that's dedicated to developing wisdom. There's this ancient African word, Ubuntu, 
see some of you nodding. Do you recognize this word? We are who we are through others. A person is a person through people. I love this word because it points to how deeply interconnected we all are. How our actions of mind, speech and body impact each other for good or for ill. And as we wholeheartedly give ourselves over to the practice of the five precepts, we make the space safe. It's like a gift that we give to each other. And it's also a gift that we give to ourselves as well. It makes our inner world safe for us to attend to to know we're not having to dodge different parts of ourselves, avoid certain thoughts, because we've lived in such a way that we've done right by ourselves, done right by other people. It's sometimes referred to in the texts as the bliss of blamelessness non-remorse, the lack of inner discord that comes with living ethically. And this non-remorse can lead to a deep relaxation in the body. And that becomes a condition for an intense joy. And that can become the ground or condition for a sweet contentment and happiness. And the mind just naturally starts to gather and collect around whatever object we're resting our awareness on. So there's no need to will ourselves into samadhi. We can rest and relax. As a result of our ethical actions, this attunement to harmlessness, Ajahn Suchito um, suggests dwelling on the heart-opening effects of recognizing that no creature need fear or mistrust someone who's ethical. It's a beautiful aspiration. So in a moment we'll take the refuges and the precepts and it'll be an invitation to be a safe space and a refuge for all of life all living beings no one no one excluded beautiful aspiration being a safe space and a refuge for all of life, all beings.
So we'll chant the refuges and precepts. We'll chant the refuges together in the language of Pali, in the language of the Buddha's discourses. And we'll do that in call and response. And then we'll take the precepts together in English. So with the refuges, the first part of the chant for the refuges is a kind of a, an homage to the Buddha, an appreciation for the Buddha, what he taught, that he became awakened. And then the, uh, the refuge itself, three part, I go for refuge to the, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, for the second time, I go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. For the third time, I go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So it's a pretty simple chant. There are a few basic words to it. The word Buddhang means Buddha. <laughs> Saranang means refuge. And Gachami means to walk or to go towards. So Buddhang Saranangachami, I go to refuge in the Buddha. And then Dhammang Sangang. And then there's the word Dutiampi, which means the second time, and Tatiampi, which means the third time. So we'll do this for the, uh, the homage, we'll do it uh, a few words at a time and then a call and response, and then uh, for the first line, and then we'll do the line together, and then for the uh, refuges, we'll do a line at a time together. Namo tasa. Bhagavato. Arahato, Sama Sambudasa, Sama Sambudasa, Namo Tasa Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambudasa, Namo Tasa Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambudasa, Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Buddhang Sarananga Chami Buddhang Sarananga Chami Dhammang Sarananga Chami Sangang Sarananga Chami Sangang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Buddhang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Buddhang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Dhammang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Budang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Budang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Damang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami And for the precepts in English, um, for the third precept, we'll take a precept for refraining from sexual activity for the duration of this retreat. <laughs> 
for the purposes of training. For the purposes of training. I I undertake the precept to refrain from taking life. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking life. For the purpose of training. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. For the purpose of training. For the purpose of training. I undertake to refrain from sexual activity. I undertake to refrain from sexual activity. For the purpose of training. For the purpose of training. I undertake the precept to refrain from false speech. I undertake the precept for the purpose of training, for the purpose of training, I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicants, which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. I undertake the training to refrain from Thank you for entering into this container of safety and harmlessness, of refuge and ethics. And we will be taking our rest at this point, although if you have energy the hall is always open, so you're welcome to continue sitting or walking, if you wish, this evening. And yet, it's often a lot of energy to get to retreat, and we're often quite tired. I think I heard that repeated many times in the opening circle. And so, please take rest and we'll see you in the morning. <laughs>